I'm going to be reading out of 1 Peter 2, 9. And I love this one. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Every, whoops, do I have it turned off? No, there we are. Good morning, everybody. It is uh, a pleasure to be able to preach for you guys this morning back in my home church. And so for those of you uh, that are a little bit tired, this is a good time to take a nap. No. <laughs> um, and so uh, I'm very glad to be able to preach. I just thank Dusty uh, with all my heart and the leadership for allowing me to do this. And it'll probably be the last time because for the next 30 minutes or so, you get a peek inside my mind and I will never be invited on stage ever again. But um, I will try and get you guys out on time. Uh, I, I can't necessarily promise that because the chances of that is slim to none because it's already 1140. I wish we could beat the Catholics to El Charos too, but I don't know what else I can trim out of my sermon. So... The story that we find ourselves in is continuing to follow this VBS series of Heroes of the Fort, how uh, little kids can do these small actions but have some of the greatest impacts for the kingdom of God. And so our narrative that we find ourselves in in Acts chapter 23 is actually smack dab in the middle of um, Luke's longest narrative that he writes in the book of Acts. So Luke is the author of Acts, um, and the, the book of Acts, most of those stories are pretty, you know, short. And it's, they're kind of spotty. And it's like Paul was here, Peter was down there, Paul's doing something over here, Peter's back over here doing this. And it's just boom, 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 kind of like a ping pong match. But uh, starting in Acts chapter 19, Luke slows way down. And it is one continuous story from Acts chapter 19 all the way to the end of the book of Acts in Acts chapter 28. So I encourage you guys sometime this week to uh, go back and read through that so you can really appreciate uh, kind of the pickle that Paul finds himself in. And so uh, for time's sake, we will uh, be skipping over some stuff. It's a very uh, detailed, dense story. And we'll hit the highlights because uh, just, just for time's sake... Uh, but I do feel like it's good to get kind of this running start uh, into Acts chapter 23 so that we can really appreciate the, the gravity of this situation. And so Paul for years, remember in Acts chapter 7, Paul has, uh, he was going to go persecute the church down in Damascus on the road to Damascus. He was going to uh, kill, maim, and prison, whatever he can do to stop the mission of Christ. And Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he has changed his life. Jesus has changed Paul's life in the course of his life for forever. So for years, Paul has been ministering to the Gentiles, a group that before he met Jesus, he probably hated. But he met Jesus, his life has changed, his mission has changed. And so for years, he has been ministering and preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And he has been incredibly effective. But... Paul is always longing to go back to Jerusalem. In fact, in Romans, uh, he says, I'm blanking on the chapter, but in Romans, he says that I would give up my salvation to be able to save my brother and sisters uh, in the Jewish faith. I would be willing to go to hell if that means that they get to be saved. And so his heart is obviously with, with his Jewish brothers and sisters. And so finally, in Acts chapter 19, of no longer being able to be in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit gives him the green light it is okay for you to go to Jerusalem. It's one of those things that the Spirit isn't like, you need to go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's like, it's okay if you do go. 
That's a, an important distinct, uh, uh, distinction to remember in this story. It's okay for you to go back. And so Paul's like, all right, this is awesome. This is what I've been waiting for for years. Uh, Timothy and Erastus, go to Macedonia. Tell the elders that we're about to leave. Tie up loose ends there. He says, I'm going to stay here in Ephesus, and I'm going to tie up loose ends here so that the churches can kind of stand spiritually on their own two feet. And we are going. We're finally going back home. We're finally going to Jerusalem. And so while Paul is trying to tie up loose ends back in Ephesus, something big goes down. So Ephesus, uh, the people of Ephesus, the pagans of Ephesus, are worshipers of the Greek pantheon, or basically the Greek gods and goddesses. Uh, And so one of the the most notable gods that they worship is this god Artemis. And, um, And so what people would generally do to to worship Artemis is that they would buy silver jewelry, you know, depicting Artemis, silver idols depicting Artemis, because Ephesus was known for its silver. And so that was kind of how they would worship Artemis, is doing something with silver, something to worship, whether sacrificing it, buying it, buying it, and putting it at a shrine, whatever. And so... Paul is, uh, is preaching and teaching, and he's making these converts, these pagans, into Christians like crazy. And so these silversmiths are getting very, very angry because their clientele is depreciating. And they are leaving that faith to go to the Christian faith. And so uh, this silversmith kind of cowboys the whole pony show and says, Guys, we're losing our bankroll. And I'm not very happy about this. I know that you're not happy about this. And the public number one enemy that's responsible for this is this dude named Paul. So let's go bananas. Let's uh, get everybody that we can riled up in the city. And let's try and get Paul kicked out. Because I'm ready to make bank again. And, uh, and so they do exactly what they said that they're going to do. They get about 25,000 men, let alone the women and children, but 25,000 men riled up and, and ready to take out Paul. And so they all rush to the stadium, and like I said, they are just going bonkers because they want Paul out of the city. And, uh, and so the Jewish leaders get wind that, you know, this huge mob has made Paul their number one enemy, and they get a little nervous. Now, Paul has kind of separated himself from the Jewish religion. He's now a Christian. He's now teaching and preaching Jesus that the Jewish people didn't preach and teach. But Paul is notably a former Pharisee and a former Jew. And they're a little bit worried that, uh, you know, because Paul is a Jew, we don't want this, like, bananas-going crowd to associate us with Paul. Because if they think in any way, shape, or form that Paul is part of, you know, our religious sect, this could have major uh, consequences for us in the future. So they get this poor guy, Alexander, because he's a well-known guy. He's well-known to be a Jew. And uh, they're saying, okay, so Alexander, this is what we need you to do. Those 25,000 people that are about to kill someone, we need you to go before all of them and try to calm them down. You have a very serious job. And so make sure that uh, you put distance between us and the Apostle Paul, because we do not want to have this mob targeting us after they're done targeting Paul just because he used to be a Jew. And so he goes up there, and what actually ends up happening is the exact opposite of what the Jewish leaders want. They see uh, Alexander up there on stage trying to calm them down, and um, their, their immediate response is, great as Artemis, great as Artemis. It says that they realize that he is a Jew, and then so immediately they make the connection in their minds that this isn't just Paul's fault. This is also a Jewish people's, the Jewish religion, the Jewish culture's 
fault. And so Paul is forced to leave. It's important to remember that uh, Paul kind of caused some backlash for the Jewish people there in Ephesus. Important to remember that in chapter 23. But so Paul, because of this riot, because of the people, you know, really wanting blood, he decides to go back to Macedonia with Erastus and Timothy. Remember, he sent them there and he tries to wait until everything cools down. So he's there for a couple months and it says that he said, all right, it's time to go back to our original timeline. Let's get to Jerusalem. And so he sails south of Ephesus, just a couple miles to the town of Miletus. And he, he writes to the elders of Ephesus and says, hey guys, I'm in Miletus. Please come see me. You know, this is going to be the last time that you ever get to see me ever. And I want to pray with you. And so they come down and the Holy Spirit, it says uh, in Acts chapter 21, that the Holy Spirit kind of takes over these Ephesian elders and leads them to beg Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So the same Holy Spirit that gave Paul the green light to go is now the same Holy Spirit that is uh, ushering these Ephesian elders and begging Paul not to go. And so have you guys ever, maybe it's a teacher, you know, I've got some of my my former teachers in here. I see Mrs. Toll, she taught me science. I see Mr. Armstrong, who taught me uh, uh, algebra in my junior year, or algebra two, my junior year or something. And so there were probably times, I had an attitude problem. I'm sure you guys remember that. I'm sure that they're like, he's preaching? What? Um, I had an attitude problem, I know. And so there were probably a couple times, I wish I could say I was a perfect student, but that's false, Um, where they would be talking, I'd be like, I wonder what's for supper tonight. Or, man, I really hope football practice isn't that hot. Or, oh, snap, I need to be paying attention to this. I'm pretty sure that that's probably the the situation that we find Paul in because, you know, the Holy Spirit is telling him, if you go to Jerusalem, it's only going to be bad news bears. It's not going to be a good situation for you. But Paul knows all of this is going to happen. In every town, he's faced persecution. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten within an inch of his life. He's been in prison. And every time that he's done that, the the name of Christ has become more and more famous. So it's kind of like, yeah, this this is old news. This is old news. I, I, don't, I don't need to hear this again. This is no surprise to me. And so they hop back on their boat, heading for Jerusalem, even though the Holy Spirit's like, watch yourself. He uh, hops on another ship to a town uh, called Tyre. And so uh, the, the believers in Jesus there in Tyre do the same thing. They rush to Paul, and uh, the Holy Spirit ushers them and says, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem... Nothing but bad things are going to happen. This is not going to go the way you want. And Paul, once again, it says in the very next sentence, so Paul continued on to Jerusalem. He's very stubborn. And uh, the last stop that he makes before he gets to Jerusalem is in the, the capital of that region, Caesarea. And so this is kind of the most dramatic warning that the Holy Spirit gives him. This, this prophet Agabus... Isn't that an interesting name? This prophet Agabus goes to Paul, takes Paul's belt off of Paul, and Agabus starts to tie his own hands and feet and says, the way that I'm being bound right now, the owner of this belt will be bound by the Jewish people and handed over to the Gentiles. The very next sentence. So Paul continued on to Jerusalem. And once Paul landed in Jerusalem, the first thing that he does is he goes to James, the half-brother of Jesus, not the apostle of Jesus, but James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is the leader of the Christian church there in Jerusalem. And so he, uh, he tells James, he's like, 
man, the Gentiles, the, the Christian faith in the Gentiles is spreading like wildfire, you know, in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Galatia, just naming all of these awesome things, all of these awesome places where God is exploding and Jesus is being praised. And James just kind of unfortunately has to say, that's really great, but we don't have much good news for you here back in Jerusalem. Because you see, the last couple years that you've been gone, there's been a lot of misinformation spread about you. And these people, they think that A, you're telling them to ignore the law. B, that you're telling them that uh, you can just basically disregard Moses. He's basically a non-person. Don't worry about him. And that you've been disrespecting the temple. And so in first century uh, Jewish culture, you know, you can talk about my mama, you can talk about my daddy, but you do not talk about Moses and you do not talk about the temple. That was grounds for immediate execution. And so they, they just kind of warned Paul, like, hey, watch yourself out there. We've got these couple guys that have taken a vow uh, to kind of signify your theological integrity, but man, these people are heated. Watch yourself out there. And it says, not too long after that, Paul is worshiping in the temple. And these Jews from Asia, the capital of Asia at that point in time was Ephesus, the same town that Paul kind of got the Jewish people a little bit in trouble. Jump Paul in, in the temple, drag him out to the streets, and are literally trying to kill him, literally trying to pull him apart. They're going for broke. They're going for blood. The commotion uh, is heard by the city commander, and so he goes down there, guns a-blazing, and gets Paul out of the commotion and, you know, out of the mob, out of the chaos, and he starts bringing him to the fortress for his protection. But this mob is so bananas that they start chasing the Roman commander, and he has to put Paul on top of his shoulders to get just as much separation as possible between the mob and Paul. And so it was a failed attempt on Paul's life, and they convene. These 40 men convene and say, we are not going to eat and we're not going to drink until Paul's dead. In other words, we are going to kill Paul or die trying. So here's the plan. We're going to innocently go to the city commander and say, man, we, we just really want you to, to take Paul to the Sanhedrin. We really just want to get down to, you know, kind of brass tacks exactly what Paul did wrong. You know, if he is guilty, then yes, he needs to be punished. But if he's not, we just want to know what's going on. But really, what they really want to do is, while Paul is being transported to the Sanhedrin courts, they want to jump the convoy and do whatever it takes to kill Paul. And so Paul's little nephew hears the plans that are about to happen. And so he goes and tells Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, Uncle Paul, here's what's going to happen. They're going to transport you and they're going to jump you and kill you. And so Paul tells the guard that's watching him, and, and he goes, he says, take this to the city commander and tell him exactly what you've told me. And so uh, the guard takes him to the city commander and he says, sir, you know, th this little boy has something to tell you. And says that the city commander took his hand, kind of signifying that this is a pretty little kid. He says, what do you have to say? Any of you guys expected a, a straightforward answer to a question while talking to a child? Because if you have that expectation, you've obviously never asked a little kid anything. Well, Uncle Paul, see, he was on the road to Damascus, and when he, he met Jesus, Mom doesn't think it's Jesus because he is on the bad side, and, oh my gosh, kid, just tell me what's going on. You know, it's, it's a very hard to get a straightforward question or straightforward answer out of this little kid, but uh, eventually it comes out that 
Uncle Paul is about to be jumped. And so he writes to some of the higher-ups. The city commander writes to some of the higher-ups in Caesarea, the capital of, uh, of that region, and says, I'm sending Paul a prisoner to you because there's no way, shape, or form that he's going to be safe in this city. And so 200 men escort Paul to Caesarea. And in the last couple chapters of the book of Acts, he is being tried by some pretty important names in the, the Roman Empire, Governor Festus, Governor Felix. And we'll kind of get to the end of Paul's story here in just a little bit. But the thing I want you to think about, Paul's journey to Jerusalem can be summarized by one word, failure. Failure, failure, failure. An epic failure. He was there for a little bit over a week and then immediately had to tuck tail and run. How many of you have have ever failed? Raise your hands. So uh, for those of you that had your hands raised, you know, you are thinking of a failure. For those of you that uh, didn't have your hands raised, you failed at listening to instructions because we all know that you have failed. Because we're humans. We are what we are. We are not perfect beings. We are definitely imperfect. How many of you are haunted by the thought of failing or haunted by past failures? Raise your hands. Yeah. And so as humans, as you know, Christian humans even, we have to learn how to deal with failure. One thing I want you to remember and one thing I want you to see from the Apostle Paul here is that Paul had reckless abandon for making Jesus' name famous. First off, let's identify how important evangelizing and saving lost people is to the heart of Jesus. The last thing he says in Matthew, he says... Uh, the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching, to, uh, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, and surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. It's like, hey, guys, I'm about to go to heaven. You're not going to see me again, so listen up. Last words, uh, you know, last will and testament, go make my name famous. In Acts chapter 1, 6 through 8, he says, stay in Jerusalem for the time being, but you wait for the gift that my Father is giving you, the Holy Spirit, and you are going to take my name, take my ministry, take Take my gospel to the four corners of the earth. You are going to make my name famous. The heart of Jesus can be found in those last ditch words to his very stubborn apostles. My mission for you is to go make my name famous. And Paul has taken that mission and he has run with it. He is arguably one of the greatest ministers, one of the greatest missionaries that has ever existed. He was recklessly abandoned to this mission of making Christ's name famous to the point where it's like, Paul, you are not going to have a good time in Jerusalem. Paul, you're going to be uh, facing intense persecution and intense pressure against you if you go to Jerusalem. I don't care. I do not care. I'm going to recklessly abandon and have this reckless abandon and this passion to, to follow Christ's mission. If that means failure, then so be it. So sometimes reckless abandon, let me give you some encouragement here before we talk about failure. Sometimes reckless abandon will end in victory. Let me tell you a story. Before I tell you this story, guys, um, this is a story of victory from my own personal life. And here's the deal. I don't mean to be tooting my own horn. I do not think that I am all that in a bag of chips, okay? I am just a slim portion of whatever that is, and the only thing that I have in connection to a bag of chips is that if you open up my head, it's 30% of what actually matters, and then it's just blank space and hot air, right? So, and so, 
I, you know, I I'm, can be very impatient. I've got sometimes a sharp tongue, sometimes I think before I speak. Uh, case in point, I said C-R-A-P, you know, in the first service, and so I warned Dusty. I was like, you know, you're probably going to have a couple angry emails Monday morning. <laughs> so I, I am imperfect. One thing that comes very natural to me, though, is being bold in my faith and recklessly abandoning uh, anything that, that I have to try and get Jesus' name famous. I worked at a drug rehab unit in, uh, in Joplin. And I can't, you know, say his real name, so we're just going to call him Bill. Good old Bill. Bill was about a 15-year-old kid that came to me in drug rehab, and he had a pretty long rap sheet of the stuff that was in his system when he first came to us. I was the one that performed the, the drug panel. I was the one that intaked, uh, you know, all of his clothes, recorded everything that he brought in the facilities so that we could. And so this takes a good hour and a half. And he's in there with me the entire time that it happens. That's our policy. And uh, you know something bad has had to happen in his life. You know, you're 15 years old. It's already spiraled, spiraled out of control that you've got to spend 12 to 15 weeks in a drug rehab facility. And so I kind of start talking to him. I said, all right, Bill, so where are you from? He said, I'm from Joplin. You know, short answers. You can tell that this kid's just mad at the world. Oh, okay, you're from Joplin. Awesome. And... Uh, get the results from the drug test. Like, wow, buddy, this is quite a rap sheet. I said, uh, so what's, what's going on? And uh, he just kind of played off the ant or the question, you know, whatever. I was mad, mad at the world. And so uh, in the back of my head, I was just like, okay, for whatever reason, God is laying this kid on my heart. For whatever reason, uh, I'm making this my goal to preach Jesus to this kid. And so he has to go and get a shower, and there's a couple different things that he's got to do before he can be accepted into the general population of this facility. And so it's already pretty late when he gets through all of the, the criteria, so to speak, to actually be welcomed into the facility. And so he hasn't had dinner, and uh, he said, Brett, I'm really hungry. Can we go get something to eat? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll come, uh, come down to the kitchen. I'll make you a PB&J. And so while I'm in the kitchen making a PB&J, he's in the calf. I just see him like this. I think the, the gravity of him being a 15-year-old in a drug rehab has finally hit him. And so, uh, you know, I get done making the sandwich, I, I hand it to him, and I just sit there with him. And he looks up, and there's just tears rolling down his face. I'm like, yes! This is the perfect time to start talking about Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> And so I do exactly that. I say, hey, buddy, I'm training to be a minister. You know, I love Jesus with my whole heart. And, uh, you know, I know that there's problems. There's either problems at home. Uh, maybe not everything's clicking as it should be upstairs. Uh, but I do know that Christ can restore all things, that Christ is better and bigger than all things going on in your life. And so he, uh, he had some questions, but I ended the conversation with this. I said, I'm making it my personal goal to show you the love of Christ, and I'm making it my personal goal to teach to you and to preach to you the love that God has for you, no matter where you're at, whether that's in a drug rehab facility or if you're upstage preaching to 300 people. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, where you're at, Jesus loves you. And so he's like, okay. And so 15, 12, 15 weeks goes by, and he is exited out of the facility. Six months to the day that I did his intake, I was able to baptize this young man at Carterville Christian Church into our faith. Oh, you guys. Um, and so, reckless abandon, recklessly abandoning this mission 
or, or having this reckless abandon for the mission of Christ can have great payoff. But it will have sacrifice. It will cause sacrifice. Because I don't know how many times I was called into the office and said, are you preaching to Bill? Yeah. Well, if you do it again, you're fired. Next week, I would still be preaching to Bill. Get called in the office. Are you still preaching to Bill? Yeah. Well, if you do it again, you're fired. They never pulled the trigger and fired me for Bill. And so after the third or fourth time, it's like, I'm going to call your bluff. I don't think it's going to happen. Because nobody wants to work here. You're not going to be able to replace me. You know? (laughs) I am not expendable by any means. (laughs) And so um, victory can happen. But you will have to learn how to deal with failure. And this is where we get to Bob. And so, once again, about 15, 16-year-old kid from one of the suburbs, St. Petersburg. It's a suburb of St. Louis. I'm doing his intake and same old song and dance, you know, quite a rap sheet of what's in his system. And so I start asking him, buddy, what's going on? And he kind of just plays off the, the question. It's like the first kid, and I'm like, man, this is, uh, this is familiar. And so I keep talking to him, and he's making such progress. He says, can you buy me a Bible? I'm like, yeah, I'll smuggle it into the, you know, smuggle it into the facility. But yes, I will buy you a Bible. And he says, man, I just got done reading Matthew. And uh, I guess I didn't really realize how much, you know, Jesus sacrificed. And it came on getting, you know, we were going further and further, progressing further and further. And he said, Brad, I'd really like to be baptized. And so it started circulating around the, uh, the office that I was about to baptize another kid. And they said, we're not playing. Hand in your resignation. I said, all right, give me 10 minutes, I'll be back with it. And so as I was leaving, you know, I was getting stuff out of my locker, and I stopped by Bob, and uh, I said, I've already Googled a church in St. Petersburg, and uh, that's where I'm going to baptize you, buddy. So when you get out, you call me, and let's get this done. Well, he called me when he got out, and he said, Brett, I... I just don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can turn away from my life. You know, I'm back in the same environment that pushed me to doing drugs, that pushed me into the lifestyle that I was once living, and I don't know if I'm strong enough to overcome it. And man, I begged, I pleaded, nothing changed his mind. Six months later, he's a drug dealer. Obvious failure, an obvious failure. And man, how many of you guys have failed and it just hurt so much that you could just feel it in your gut. That intense feeling of, I failed. I, let, I failed Bob. I failed God. It's a pretty horrible feeling. So when you guys fail, I want you to uh, take on the attitude of Paul. First off, just because you fail does not mean that, that you get to sit on the sidelines. The ministry of Jesus and the mission of Jesus is way too important just to sit on our hands. A great opportunity to serve right now is to do VBS. I I was the director of uh, two VBSs in my time there in Garnett. It is awful trying to recruit. It is horrible. But you have the opportunity to speak truth and to speak love in those lives because not all of those kids that come through those doors, I can guarantee you this, not all of those kids that come through those doors come from loving situations. There are going to be neglected and unloved kids and you are going to have the chance to be able to show the love of Jesus to those students. I guarantee that Ian is already and is always needing some form of, uh, some form of help. 
I love 1 Peter 2.9. It says you are a great, uh, you are supposed to be ministers of the gospel. You know, you are a great nation, a holy people. But so many times I think we are just sitting on our hands and ignoring the mission that Christ has given us. And it is to have reckless abandon when it comes to seeking and saving the lost. And so failure did not keep Paul down. Paul is in a, a week or so in Jerusalem, and Paul picks himself up by his bootstraps, and he gets sent to Rome where he does the best ministry that he's ever done. He is in the center of the world at that point in time, Rome, and the gospel spreads like wildfire like never before. This is where he writes books of the New Testament. And if Paul wasn't imprisoned, if this little boy didn't save Paul from certain death, from being ambushed, we wouldn't have a New Testament that looks like the New Testament we have now. The best ministry that Paul ever did came after failure because God can restore your failures, God can redeem your failures, and God absolutely will work through failures. Our God is way bigger than the, your failures. Second thing that you need to remember is that you never let God down. That is literally impossible because you were never holding God up. You understand that, right? God's love and God's kingdom and God's uh, passion and his work is not dependent on our success. God has already succeeded because of the work of that one thing that stands above my head right now. So your failure is not permanent. Christ has already won this battle. And so we should take courage and we should be willing to step out of our comfort zones and tackle the mission of Christ by seeking and saving the lost with reckless abandon. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this day, and I thank you for all of our blessings. God, help our heart to be like your heart. That our passion, our drive is to seek and save the lost, to, you know, go after that one, to not stick in church and be with the 99, but to, to go out and to love others like how you have loved us with sacrificial love. God, help us to be motivated uh, to go and be the church and to go and be you, go and be Jesus to somebody else, because even the smallest action can mean the world and can be the, the difference between salvation and condemnation. Lord, we love you. Lord, help us continue to help us to love you more. You give us the eyes to see the opportunities that you want us to take to make your name famous. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.